All right, we're in Psalm 119, verse 145, and uh, that's the letter Kuf. It says, I cry out with my whole heart. Hear me, O Lord, I will keep your statutes. I cry out to you, save me, and I will keep your testimonies. I rise before the dawning of the morning and cry for help. I hope in your word. My eyes are awake through the night watches that I may meditate on your word. Hear my voice according to your loving kindness, O Lord. Revive me according to your justice. They draw near who follow after wickedness. They are far from your law. You are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are truth. Concerning your testimonies, I have known of old that you have founded them forever. Wonderful words from uh, 119th Psalm. We're going to be in... Romans 8 1 today, all three of us. But uh, uh, yeah, Jim and Linda said they'd be here, so maybe something came up with them. But um, Carol said she would not be here. If mom comes, she's always 10 minutes late, so you know, whatever. But uh, I have, have it, has anybody heard from Pat Simmons? I called her, and I also called Judy, and I hadn't heard back from either of them, so I hope that they're okay. But anyway, we'll uh, uh, let you know that if you have a chance, and if four people come in, remind me at the end of the class, if you have a chance, go see Paul in room 811 at the hospital, because he is still there, and he is he's miserable. He is absolutely miserable. So if you have time, and you can get over room 811, he would appreciate it. That's a C elevator. Go up, and then you there's two eight wings. You have to go to the one that's in front of the elevators, not the one back to the west, to the east of them. But it'd be nice. He, you know, he's been in there now, what, two and a half, three weeks, and it would be nice to, you know, have some folks visiting him. So, anyway, uh, uh, but yeah, we'll definitely visit him on Saturday. And uh, Don, who I give a report on from time to time, is he had some more issues this week, um, and uh, he's. He, <laughs> He said that right at this point he's struggling with stage four cancer, and so uh, I, I assume that's bad. I don't know what the stages mean, but anyway, he says it's in the Lord's hand, and so we'll have him in prayer, and uh, we'll thank the Lord for this week as well. Heavenly Father, here we are. We're uh, ready to meet and, and share in your word and to study it, and we thank you for this precious word. It really is wonderful, and uh, we're just uh, we're coming to you today with grateful hearts for the Blessing, and I hate to say that in that way, Lord, because other people received the full brunt of it, but we uh, were spared here in Sarasota. We got uh, uh, little damage, and we were very, very blessed by you in that regard, but others weren't, and we pray for them that you would uh, help them to quickly recover and get their power back and to get their houses rebuilt and their lives back in order. But uh, thank you. The church was spared. Our houses were spared, and uh, other than a lot of cleanup, everything is pretty well right with the world in Sarasota, and we're grateful for that. And we certainly lift up Paul and Don, who are struggling with their own troubles and their own physical problems at this point. And uh, Lord, you know the uh, prayer list that's sent out through the Superior Word and, and all the people that are mentioned there from day to day and the troubles and trials they're facing, we want to lift them up. And Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity to meet here, and we love you, and we praise you. We thank you for all you've done for us, and we exalt you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, how are you there, Linda? We just saw Paul. <coughs> oh, good. You were visiting Paul. I yeah. was just saying to people, please go visit Paul, because... Well, we heard you. Oh, good. Good, good. Um, he, uh, he, was he better today? I don't know uh, how he was, he was yesterday, spirits. so I don't know. Uh, he was in better spirits? He looked very tired. 
tired. Okay, well that's same is as he, yesterday. His so. coloring is glowing. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. Oh boy. All right. Well, we're just right now starting in Romans one one or eight one. I'm sorry. So uh, we'll go ahead and. Uh, uh, all right, great. Uh, Romans 8.1, if you want to whip that out and start us, that would be great. And uh, uh, then we're, I'm only going to do a one-hour class today. I, you heard, I, that. I, you heard I, that already. Yeah, I can't take Paul any more told us. Oh, good, okay. Yeah, I just, I can't do more than that. It's been such a long week. It's just been okay. very no long. Kidding. So, and we got the camera running, so I'm going to read 8.1 while yeah, you're yeah. getting ready. Uh, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. All right, so 8.1, my comments on that. Uh, this uh, first verse of chapter 8 shows the culmination of all of Paul's previous discourse. He has worked slowly and he's worked methodically through the various doctrines of the previous seven chapters. And as you know, if you've been following this, he's been very methodical, building up, oh, you Jew, and uh, if you do this, and uh, uh, then writing to the Gentiles, and he's talking about the law, and then he's talking about these different things that happen, one thing after another, everything leading from point to point, very methodically. So um, he, uh, the previous seven chapters have come to this marvelous conclusion. It is a conclusion which needs to be evaluated in connection with everything that has thus far been said, or it will lead to further confusion. So go ahead and read it from your uh, Bible, and I want to see if it's the same as what we just read. Therefore, is, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's it. It's what mine has, too. Okay, this one says, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Okay, okay. Well, they now, split that because oh, that's part of verse 2 in yours? The 2 is because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit... Okay, no, that's... that's they, they dropped out an entire clause. That's, that's 2 in mine as well. So, uh, that, And that happens from time to time. You will get clauses that are dropped out of the NU text, the Alexandrian text. And uh, yeah, your footnote will say that. Yeah, so but, later manuscripts, Jesus, who do not live in accord to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Right. So, okay. So that's that's uh, the NIV, the NASB you're using, right? Okay. So they've dropped that up because it's a different text, and that's why I like to highlight those things. They will you you will have people say um, in their textual criticism they'll say something like the best manuscripts say, okay. What is that when they do that? That's subjective. Right. Yeah. It's, I'm saying that this is the best manuscript. And why? Because it's older. You know, the uh, Alexandrian text is older. It comes from Alexandria, Egypt. And then you have the Byzantine text, which is what the King James and the New King James is based on. And uh, they'll say, well, that is not as valid because it's newer. But just because something is newer doesn't mean that it's not as good, right? It, it all depends on what you are dealing with in that. So... I always try to hold uh, on cautiously to verses that are in the Bible as if they belong in the Bible. I'd rather be wrong on that than to have something not in there and to say, oh my, um, you know, I was wrong that I dropped that out. But if you were to just take the first half of that clause, therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, that is very explicit. You are in Christ and there's no condemnation. The qualifying sentence, somebody either dropped out or somebody wanted to add in because they feel that they are going to help the Bible along. I would not think that's the case. I would think that somebody dropped it out because they see some type of theological confusion in saying, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Well, walking according to the flesh is something earthly. Walking according to the spirit is something heavenly. That does not mean that you are not saved 
and in the spirit or in Christ if you're walking according to the flesh as opposed to the spirit because we have carnal Christians all over the place that are saved by Jesus Christ and they're walking um, and so they'll say well see there's condemnation in that we'll go through it in this verse okay in, ties in with uh, John 3 he who believes not is condemned already. Condemned already. There's, there's, That's right. There's no condemnation. There's no condemnation in Christ. Okay, and so this has caused somebody some trouble, and they either added this in because they were, as I said, they were some type of a legalist, and they thought, I'm going to get people on this, or somebody dropped it out because they said, this gives me some type of, of conflict in my personal theology, and so I'm going to take that out. Or it is more than possible that that verse was missed by somebody, and you'll see that where somebody is uh, doing a, uh, uh, you know, a uh, what do you call it, a co doing a copy of a manuscript, and their eyes pass over from one right. word to another, and they miss an entire clause, and that happens. That's all part of textual criticism. How do you determine what the original is? What should not have been entered? What should have been? Anyway, we'll get into that sometime. I've done it before, but for right now, um, let me go back to where we were. It is a conclusion which needs to be evaluated in connection with everything that has thus far been said or it will lead to further confusion. Okay, if properly understood, the fact that the chains of bondage are destroyed in Christ becomes perfectly evident, okay? In this coming chapter, as evidence of this certainty, Paul will deal extensively with the role of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Spirit, of will, be, the spirit will be spoken of 19 times in this, my particular version of the Bible. Yours might have one or two less, but 19 times the Spirit is mentioned right. in this chapter, so it's very heavily on Paul's mind. Um, let's see here. Um, the work of Christ had to come before the giving of the Spirit, and this is the logical progression of thought in Paul's writings. Everybody got that? Christ does his work, he ascends into heaven, and then the Spirit is given. The same thing with us. We receive the work of Christ, and then we receive the Spirit. He is the deposit, the guarantee of our salvation. Okay, so here's some points I want to give you. First, you have the state of man. Second, the introduction of the law and its consequences. This is what Paul has been dealing with in these chapters. Third, the work of Christ. Four, the effect of the work of Christ in man. And now, the fifth point would be life in the Spirit for the man in Christ. That's the logical progression that we've gone through so far in the book of Romans. Obviously, much more has been involved, and the thoughts have moved back and forth through a vast array of interwoven concepts. But he has given us an overall framework which has led to this verse and which will carry us through the coming verses, especially of chapter 8. Okay, We're going to get into 9 through 11, and it's going to change dramatically. It's going to start speaking about uh, Israel, the people of Israel, the land of Israel, and you know that particular issue, which is something that is very, very important. But up through chapter 8, this is basically what we're going to be speaking of, is the work of the Spirit in the believer in Christ. Okay? Therefore, the word therefore is the key to connecting us back to what has been submitted. Based on these things, there is therefore now no condemnation who is in Christ Jesus. Everything he's penned so far, the fallen state of man in chapter 1 and everything that he's talked about, he's saying, for those who are in Christ, he's, the resounding note of victory that he, we read last week, he said, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that with the mind I, my, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. He's built up to this, I'm in Christ, thank God Christ has delivered me from the law of sin. Okay. That is where we're looking at right here in chapter 8. And the, the word therefore is the key, and that we have the things which bound us are gone. 
in Christ Jesus. Okay, that's what he says. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. This does not mean that those who are in him have been given a free pass to sin. And I talked about that last week. That's license. Nor does it mean that sins committed in Christ aren't to be condemned. Instead, we're given a contrast. Based on the discussion of the law in chapter 7, we see that in Christ, condemnation is not pronounced in the same manner as it was under the law. When you're under the law and you do something which is sin against God, a pronouncement is made which is different than in Christ. There you had to go through a sacrificial system. You may be excluded from the covenant people. You may be stoned to death. In Christ, those things which offended God will result in a lack of rewards. They may affect your own personal life. You may end up you know, in a dumpster killed by your neighbor's uh, uh, your angry neighbor if you did something with his wife, whatever. But as far as the uh, punishment of sin on the person, it is handled in a different way under the law. But we do not have license to sin. We're given commands in the New Testament, and we are to heed to what those commands say. One person uh, I've been emailing with her for a, a couple days this week. I didn't answer many emails, but when I see a question about the law, I always try to get it out of the way. So, I, I, as a matter of fact, I think it's probably the only emails that I answered as far as a Bible question was her, and she was asking, you know, she understood that uh, uh, we preach grace here, and she said, but what about the, uh, the Sabbath law? And do we just say the Nine Commandments now and not the Sabbath? And I said, no. I said, the law of Moses is a body of commandments. It is the law. The Ten Commandments merely summarize it, but it is one law. That's why when James says, if you violate one, one precept, that's right, you've broken the whole law. It doesn't matter which one you take out. It is one law, or which not take out, which one you violate. The Ten Commandments are a part of the law of Moses. They belong in the law of Moses, and the law of Moses is annulled. It is obsolete. It is set aside. It is nailed to the cross. You can't say... I'm getting rid of all of the law of Moses except the Ten Commandments. That doesn't work because it's one corporate body of laws. Okay? So her question is then, well, what about the Ten Commandments? Are we just to not obey them? And I said, no, there's a difference. In the New Testament, nine of those commandments are explicitly repeated. We are not to murder. We're not to do this. The Sabbath is never mentioned in that context. In fact, Paul explicitly states in Colossians 2, 16 and 17, why are you observing Sabbaths? That is something that was designated prior to the law, indicating that it was more than a part of the law. Okay, It was something to Israel itself as a sign to Israel. Hebrews 4.3 explains why it's not included as a command in the New Testament. Because we, in him, we find our rest. We now rest in Christ Jesus. He is our Sabbath rest. So it doesn't matter what day of the week we observe, or if we observe every day, or if we observe no day. He is our rest. When we enter into Christ, when we receive Jesus Christ, we enter the rest of Christ, which was only a pictured, pictured in the Sabbath. Now, how do we know that? Because the Ten Commandments given in the book of Exodus base um, the Sabbath day on what? Creation. Right. When I created the world, oh. six days, and then I rested on the seventh. Okay. What does he base them on in Deuteronomy chapter 5? Redemption. Remember that I redeemed you with an outstretched hand from the land of Egypt. So he doesn't base it on the same thing. Let's go read it. You got this puzzled look on your face. Exodus 20. Here we go. Exodus 20. 
And I went through this very carefully in all of my sermons. Every Sabbath sermon, I've done at least six of them. As we've gone through Exodus, everybody's got these looks on their face. Here we go. Let me read this to you. The fourth commandment says, um, where are we? Um, Here it is. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In this you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your uh, male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your, your stranger who is within your gates. Verse 11. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Right? Well, let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 5. What does it say? It says Deuteronomy chapter 5. It says in the fourth commandment, observe the Sabbath to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter nor your male servant nor your female servant. Sounds the same, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Nor your ox nor your donkey nor any of your cattle nor your stranger who is within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well. And it also said within your gate. It didn't say that in Exodus because they didn't have gates. Right, but now they're going to enter the promised land, and it says verse 15. And remember, doesn't say anything about creation. It says that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Completely different reason. One is based on creation. One is based on redemption. Okay, it's telling us that God is showing us pictures of Christ. Christ is the creator of man. Christ is the redeemer of man. Those who believe now do enter that rest. When you go to the book of Revelation and the angels sing their psalm, songs to God, right? Guess how they sing them? First, based on creation. You created all things. And then it says, you redeemed all things, right? It's creation, redemption. Hmm. The Bible does this throughout the Bible. It's showing us a picture of Christ. That's why when we believe in Christ, we don't observe a Sabbath. And I, the last thing I said to her, and she came back and she said, that's definitely not the case. I said, if you are observing the Sabbath to please God in order to merit God's favor, you have fallen from grace and you are a debtor to the entire law. That's what it says in the book of Galatians. But if you're observing the Sabbath because that's the day you want to take off and spend your day reading the Bible and, you know, mm-hmm. if you're doing it for a legalistic reason, you are far from God. But if you are doing it because you truly just want a day off and you want to observe it to the Lord, that's as good of a day as any. Paul says in Romans uh, 14, what does he say about the Sabbath? We're not there yet. Not the Sabbath, but um, the days. He says, let me read it to you, and then we'll get back to where we were. Romans 14 says, um, uh, hang on here. It's Oh, here it is right here. One, pers- uh, one person esteems one day above another. I'm taking Saturday. I'm taking Sunday. And um, he says, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. Doesn't make any difference. Paul doesn't. He doesn't care at all, not this much. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. That means any given day that he just mentioned. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. Okay, and then he gets into food and drink after that. Whatever you do, you do it to the Lord. You are in Christ, and therefore he is your rest. Uh, Her initial statement, though, to me said, why would you observe a date which was ordained by Constantine? And I've heard this many times. Constantine said that Sunday is now the day that we worship as a Christian group, right? Mm-hmm. I said, well, that's not the case at all. The Bible ordained the Lord's Day. The Bible, And I'll mention this again on Sunday because I'm going to do something different on the Prophecy Update. But when the Bible, uh, uh, when the people met together in the book of Acts, when did they meet? 
on the first day of the week. Right. And then when Paul says set, set something aside, right, he said do it on the first day of the week. And then when uh, John was in his vision in Revelation chapter 1, when was it? It was on the Lord's day, meaning the day of the risen Christ. Constantine didn't start anything. He simply solidified what had already been started in the Bible. It's like the July 4th celebration. The war ended, and so somebody made an edict that this is now the 4th of July forever. We're going to observe this day. Veterans Day, same thing. The 11th hour of the 11th day. The edict mandating that as a holiday came after the edict mandating the end of the war. The end of the war was on the 11th day. And so somebody came along and they said, why don't we have a day to honor that day that that happened? It's the same thing with Christianity. Constantine just made something universal for the Roman Empire. It wasn't a, a scheme to get away from the Sabbath day. It was nothing like that. But people will use that because they don't like the Holy Roman Empire. And they start writing things about Catholicism and they, their theology gets tied up in extra-biblical things. This is where we get our theology. We don't get it from extra-biblical <coughs> stuff. Okay. Quick so, yes. Deuteronomy. Yes. Economy, uh, it, it it means the second name, reading. Deuteronomy. Second reading. Yes. Right. Right. So if it's second reading, why is it different? Yeah. Because he's making a point. Okay. He being the Lord. The Moses Lord. is now saying that the, the Lord, Lord has created said, you okay. and the Lord has redeemed you. And he said because he's redeemed you, he's not changed anything. <laughs> he's simply taken what the Lord has done and he's given it a new application because they are now entering the promised land. Okay. okay? So, he, he, but that's interesting, isn't it? Creation redemption. So, that yes. also to the children. That that's right. The children of the people afterward. Yeah. Okay? They have been redeemed. They were alive during the time of redemption. They were just young. They were yeah. uh, uh, under 19 or something. But um, I said something and I don't want anybody to think that I made it up. So really quickly, I'm going to go to uh, um, let's see here. Um, Right here, Romans, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 4. I said that creation, redemption, it says, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, creation, and by your, your will they exist and were created. Then you go down to the next one, and it says, um, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. So creation, redemption. You're going to see this if you look in the Bible. Hey, listen. That was not by accident. Right. And that wasn't by planning either, because John didn't just sit down and say, I'm going to base this on creation and then base this on redemption. It, it wasn't that way. He did this under the Spirit. Yeah. And, you know, people find these nuggets hundreds or thousands of years later, and they write about them. And we're the blessed ones because we've got this big corporate body of knowledge, which is now out on the Internet, and we can find things that, and make, we can see patterns that people have never seen in human history. So that's, you know, this is a really, if you like the Bible, this is a blessed time to live. If you, uh, uh, you know, if, if you like the good old days when they didn't have air conditioning and running water, then that's a little different, but they didn't have all of the knowledge in the Bible that we have. Anyway, we've got to get back into uh, uh, Romans uh, 8.1 now. So um, I'm going to read the last paragraph real quickly again. Hello, ma'am. Can we help you with anything? Isn't she cute? Uh, based on the discussion of the law in chapter 7, we see that in Christ, condemnation is not pronounced in the same manner as it was under the law. I know I just read that. I'm just reminding you. Where the law always condemns, the gospel graciously pardons. Okay? A problem and a misunderstanding does arise, though, from the rest of the verse. And this is where your Bible and your Bible don't have it in there. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Is this a conditional statement on... Um, 
uh, on ultimate condemnation of the believer? In other words, is this saying that if one doesn't outwardly walk according to the Spirit, they can lose their salvation and go back into the avenue of destruction? We're supposing that these words actually belong in this verse, okay? That's my assumption. These words belong here. The answer is no. However, because of the wording and a misunderstanding of the context of Paul's thoughts, this is often what is proposed by scholars. As always, the context of a passage must be considered. What are the principal uh, uh, rules of interpretation? You have, is it prescriptive? Is it descriptive? And what is the context? What is the context? And what is the context? That's right. Always check the context, all right? So, um, uh, because people will misunderstand the context or take those, this verse out of context, you're going to get a misunderstanding. As always, the context of the passage must be considered. Right from the beginning of chapter 7, Paul gave the, gave the example of death, nullifying law, and then he equated that with Jesus' death, nullifying the law for us. Thus, we are positionally in Christ and dead to the law and thus in the Spirit. Okay? That's already been stated in chapter 7. So whatever he's saying here in chapter 8 cannot contradict that. Okay? He then said that because of this, we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. That was in chapter 7 again. Where was that? The newness of the Spirit. Let me see if I can find that very quickly. Um, do, do, do. You shall not covet. Oh, newness of the Spirit anyway. It's, I didn't cite the verse there, and I'm not going to spend all day looking for it. But um, anyway, so... It, it's in there, chapter 7, and then um, I wish I'd put the, the verse number so I could refer back to it immediately, but I'm not going to spend all day on it. But anyway, we're in Christ. We should serve in the newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. The choice is still given to us, however, how we will conduct our earthly walk, regardless of our heavenly position. Okay, Every one of us has a heavenly position because of being sealed with the Spirit. Does anybody disagree with that? Verse 6. Verse 6. We'll go back there really quickly. 7, 6. Thank you. But now we have been delivered from the law. Okay? We've been delivered from it. If we've been delivered from it, we cannot be condemned regardless of any extra words that Paul adds in unless we are misinterpreting those words. Okay? But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we're held by so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. Are we going to live under the law if we're saved? We're just going to lose our joy. We're going to lose our happiness in the Spirit. We're not going to be pleasing to God. If we are not saved, we will never be pleasing to God because we're trying to earn our salvation through the law. There's a difference. People that are saved and people that aren't saved. But in the end, the joy is lost in either situation. Okay? I'd love to hear people say, you know, I get joy out of fulfilling the law because I have people emailed me. This, his commands aren't burdensome and I get joy out of fulfilling the law and I think... You are a pick and chooser, aren't you? Because you're not down in Jerusalem, you know, on uh, doing this and doing 613. that. And 613 laws, and they get joy out of doing every single one of them. There's no joy in that at all. I assure you of that. But people say that to me constantly in emails because they they cannot let go of this this idea that they must somehow add to the work of Christ and what He did on the cross. Anyway, okay. So He gave us that uh, particular thing about walking in the uh, spirit in the newness of the spirit we are in Christ positionally okay and dead to the law and thus we are in the spirit that's it positionally we are all there okay 
The choice is given to us how we are going to walk, though, regardless of our heavenly position. Condemnation in this verse is the word katakrima, okay? F.F. Bruce rightly calls it punishment following sentence. In other words, penal servitude. There is no reason for those who are in Christ Jesus to serve sin as if they have never been pardoned and never been delivered from that prison house of sin, okay? And yet how many Christians do that? They serve sin as if it was... Think of it. Think of how many people you know that are actually saved Christians that are in your church that are doing something that are truly <coughs> sinful. Okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It's been happening since the beginning of the church. The guy's sleeping with his father's wife. Whether his father was dead, which some people assume, or whether his father divorced her, doesn't matter. It is something that was perverse according to the Bible. It's morally perverse. He said even the Gentiles wouldn't do this. Okay? Before the giving of the law, we have the example of Reuben, the oldest son of Jacob, doing exactly that. He slept with his father's wife, right? And he lost his birthright. He lost his position within the family because of doing that. It's something that we know is perverse, okay? But there are people that do these things that we know are saved Christians. I, I know several saved Christians that I used to worship with over at Grace Baptist Church that have done things that have excluded them from fellowship, right? That's just the way of the world. Doesn't mean they've lost their salvation. They're walking according to the world, though. All right? So, um, let's see here. Uh, if you follow the logic, this is not speaking of condemnation in eternal hell, but the condemnation of living in prison, which results from living in sin. If we walk according to the Spirit, we are living a life of freedom from the bondage of sin. If we fail to conduct our lives according to this walk, then we will suffer the prison of our walk. This is what Paul is speaking about. As evidence for this, the rest of the New Testament will show us it time and time and time again. For example, Paul says this to the people in Ephesus. He says, let him who stole steal no longer, right? Implying that there are people that are still in Ephesus stealing. They're saved believers, and he's telling them, stop doing that, okay? He goes on, he says, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. He says, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. Does he say it's impossible for that to happen? No. But don't let it happen. The choice is yours. You can let corrupt words come out of your mouth, or you can not do it. There's nothing to stop you from stealing as a Christian. All right? But who is the one that's going to go to jail when you get caught stealing? Okay? I'll continue with that first. But what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And then he goes on, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He repeats what he says in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. You believed, you received the Holy Spirit of God, and you can grieve the Holy Spirit of God. But he qualifies it. The Spirit has sealed you for the day of redemption. You are sealed, you will be redeemed but you're the one that is going to suffer because of the actions which grieve the Spirit in the process, okay? It, it, it's so clear if people would just simply pick up the Bible, keep it in context, and read what it says instead of believing one little verse taken out of context out of a multitude of verses which surround it, which don't have anything to do with that particular issue. Okay, he goes on. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Now, before I go on, I want to 
explain that last verse. How many times do you have somebody say, in Christianity, you must forgive everybody? Have you heard that a million times? A zillion. Anytime that you do something wrong, somebody comes and uh, uh, offends you, and they say, well, you have to forgive them. You're a Christian. That is the most abused concept that I can think of in Christianity, is saying you have to forgive everybody. <clears throat> Forgiveness is never, never unconditional in the Bible. Never. And they'll use that verse, and they'll say, see, you have to forgive everybody just as God in Christ forgave you. And they forget that it says, just as God in Christ forgave you. Because how did God in Christ forgive you? I sinned, I need you, I believe, and then he forgives us. If you say that that doesn't mean that, then that means everybody is saved. Unconditional salvation. You might as well go over to the universal church, right? And they believe that everybody goes to heaven, so why go to that church? Why would you waste your time going to a church when everybody goes to heaven? Go do whatever you want, right? It says on Jesus on the cross, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. See, he forgave them. You have to forgive them too. Guess what it said? For they know not what they do. When somebody personally offends you, you don't have to forgive them unless, unless they ask. If somebody repents, every single instance in the Bible where forgiveness is given, repentance always comes first. And I'm talking about a change of mind repentance. I'm not talking about what people think repentance means, like I gotta stop doing something. Repentance means changing your mind. In other words, it's okay. not just the words. It's not just the words, it is, it is somebody coming to you and saying, please forgive me, okay? And until that happens, you are not obligated to forgive anybody. There are people that have offended others so deeply that they will never, ever get over it in their life. And they say, well, everybody tells me I've got to forgive them. The Bible never says that. It never says that you have to forgive that person. You can let it go. You can hand it over to Christ, and that'll help you in your own soul. But you actually, guess what? You cannot forgive somebody that has not come to you and asked for forgiveness. That's arrogant. Think it through. If somebody says to you, I forgive you, I haven't done anything wrong, Right? Or, I don't want your forgiveness. Yeah, right, exactly. It is, it is arrogant to say, I forgive you when somebody has not come to you and asked for forgiveness or who has refused to ask for forgiveness knowing that they've offended you and they intentionally did it. You are not required to forgive without repentance. You will never find a case in the Bible where that is mandated. People will forgive, but that doesn't mean it's required. Yes. And the other thing that's, that's kind of crazy about people who try and twist that, it's like, you, you not only have to forgive me, but you have to forget. Yeah. And it's like, okay, stop. It's like, you know, I'll forgive you again. There is no forgetting. But I'm not forgetting. I'm not going to step on the rake this no. time. It's Th- like, there is no forgetting. Absolutely forget. right. So anyway, but... If they're, if they're a believer, you still have to love them. Hey, yeah, you got to love them. You don't have to like them, but you have to love them. Yeah, that's, that's true. <laughs> yeah, you have to love the brothers, but you don't need to like them. You're, you're absolutely right that. But uh, forgiveness is something that must come from the person that is offended before it is granted by the person who was offended. It must be, okay? Forgiving everyone just as God in Christ Jesus forgave you. God in Christ Jesus forgave me when I came to him and asked for it, and not until then, okay? So, anyway, um, and if you have a dispute about that, send me your verse and I'll tell you where you're wrong, because I have an entire, entire thing page uh, typed up, pages of it typed up on that particular issue. You're not going to find one. In the book of Mark... There is one where it says you must go forgive this person. Leave your something, something, you must go forgive them. But if you take the same account in Matthew, I think it is, or it might be Luke, in one of the other Gospels, it the same account ties it in with forgiveness. So, in other words, 
it's still based on repentance, okay? If you take just the one in Mark out of context and say, see, it says that, so I want you to know, you, you find that one and send it to me, I will send you the one where it says the same pattern, but with the, the repentance center. He was making a point here, he was adding on to the point here, but it was in the same encounter and it was based on repentance. Okay, so um, let's see here, Ephesians 4, 28 through 32. And uh, for those in Christ who fail to follow the instruction that I read you from Ephesians, for example, all the times don't do this and don't do that. When they fail to follow the instruction and live in agreement with the Spirit, they have been granted. They will receive the condemnation in the flesh that they deserve. That is what Paul is speaking of here. He's not speaking about condemnation you know, from Christ. The <laughs> condemnation in the flesh that they deserve. However, this does not affect their eternal state in Christ. As always, the biblical truth of eternal salvation is upheld. We are in Christ. The law is dead to us, but we can still commit offenses which will destroy our flesh. It will not take our position away in this, uh, the spirit or you know, our eternal uh, position in Christ. That will never be lost. Okay. As a matter of fact, um, uh, one of those things... Somebody uh, just before the class FaceTimed me, and she had a question. She's trying to help somebody with a theological issue, and she says, where is it, um, how do I logically defend eternal salvation? And I took them to Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, which I cite all the time. You believe you receive the Spirit, it's a guarantee. And I said the same thing I say every time, okay? If you can lose your salvation, then God made a mistake in giving you the Spirit in the first place, right? Everybody got that? He sealed me with the Spirit, and then he said, it's a guarantee, so secondly, it's a very crummy guarantee. And if that was the case, then it's not the God of the Bible. It is not the God who does not change. So logically, that verse takes you there. Okay? And then her next question, which is valid, what if somebody walks away from the faith? And the answer is in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Before going there, you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and you say the verse that I said a minute ago, the guy that is sleeping with his father's wife, what did he say to do? Yeah. Send him out, hand him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of Christ Jesus. Okay, that's what Paul says. Hand him over to Satan that is uh, for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in Christ Jesus. Well, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, two guys walked away from the faith. They shipwrecked their faith and they walked away. I want nothing to do with this anymore. And what did Paul say about them? <coughs> I've handed them over to Satan not to blasphemy. The context being that their flesh will be destroyed, but they will, their spirit will be saved in the day of Christ Jesus, okay? Because he's used that example once, it follows logically the second example. Handing somebody over to Satan, who is the God of this world, means that their flesh will be destroyed, but their soul will be saved. You can walk away from the faith, and you are still saved, okay? That is what the Bible teaches, all right? So, we'll go on. Um, life application. In Christ, we have freedom from the penalty of the law, and we stand justified in God's presence because of the work of Jesus. We also have the ability to serve God in the newness of the Spirit. Why would we want to cling to the flesh and suffer the consequences of such a choice? Instead, let us endeavor to live in Christ, in holiness, and in virtue. Okay? And this is the question I have to ask myself all the time. I see something I want to do that I shouldn't do. I think something that I don't want to think of. <coughs> Okay, that was me before I met Christ. Well, why did I come to Christ? 
because I didn't want to be that guy anymore, right? right? So why would I want to go back and be the guy that I don't didn't want to be when I came to Christ? If you think it through logically, we came to Christ for a reason. My reason is my reason, but I don't want to go back and participate in the reason that I came to him in the first place. And why would anybody? But as Jesus calls us, we're like dogs that return to vomit. We keep doing the same things in life. And we need to be renewed in our minds, renewed in our spirits, constantly in the Bible, constantly thinking about the things of God, or we will fall back into the flesh. No ifs, ands, or buts. Does anybody here disagree with that in their life? I don't. I, I don't at all. Um, okay, 8-2, go ahead. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Good, very close. Okay. In the analysis of verse 722, the various laws were noted which reflect our state as humans. Some are negative laws, such as the law of sin and death. Others are positive, which are granted to those who believe in Jesus. These are called laws because they work in a governing way, just as the laws of the universe do. Gravity, motion, energy, thermodynamics, etc. Everything has uh, governs something else would be considered a law. These laws that Paul's Paul is writing about are laws which govern the conduct of our lives or they govern how our lives will be affected when we don't obey those particular laws, whether they're moral or whether they're, you know, moral, whatever. Did I say moral twice? Anyway, um, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is a governing law. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. So it is a governing law. This law is granted by faith in Christ. The moment a person believes the gospel, which they have heard, they are sealed with the Holy Spirit. I've said it three times in this class. Where is that recorded? Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. You're sealed with the Spirit when you believe, okay? Now let me read that again. The moment a person believes the gospel, which they heard, they are sealed with the Spirit. A new law is available to govern us, and it has made me free from the law of sin and death, according to Paul. Okay, one law replaces another in this case. We move from a position which is in Adam, which carries the sentence of death and condemnation, to that of being in Christ, which frees us from both. Actually, there are three principal ways of being united to Christ. The first is that we are united by faith. Okay, everybody got that? Mm -hmm. Because of this relationship, we are born again, and thus we are united by birth. Okay, just as we were born into Adam, we are now born into Christ. And this means that we are in Christ in a third way, by essence. Jesus uses the symbolism of the vine and the branches. We share the vitality and life source. This is the spirit. So you're in Christ by faith, you are in Christ by birth, and you are in Christ by essence. All three of them, it's a new law which governs you as a human being when you come to Christ. The spirit, is our the spirit is our guarantee of eternal life. He is the deposit which assures us that despite the failings of our flesh, we are now children of God and co-heirs with Christ. But one final thought should be considered. We can work against the law of gravity through the use of an opposite force, can't we? Mm -hmm. Have we sent rockets up to space? Anybody gone to NASA and see that happen? I know I have. Okay, I haven't actually seen it in NASA. I've seen it from my backyard watching it from yes. NASA. But the point, or you, everybody here gotten on an airplane? Mm -hmm. Everybody here has. I know I have. I know my wife has because she's here in America and she came from Japan. And it would have been a long, long boat trip. So, 
Anyway, yeah, she's been on an airplane. So we can work against the law of gravity through the use of an opposite force, like a rocket. In the same way, we can work against the spirit in us by not yielding to the spirit. This goes back to the war that Paul speaks of in chapter 7. Remember, he talked about the war waging in his flesh. Okay? Life application. By faith, we are granted the Holy Spirit of promise. We are granted new life and a new direction. Let us not work against this great blessing, but yield to God. Stay in touch with the Lord through prayer, meditation on his word, fellowshipping with other believers, and so on. What we have been granted is infinitely superior to what we gave up. So let us endeavor to move forward in this wonderful new life. And when I say infinitely superior, I mean that. Because if you think of it, you are in Adam and you are going to die. And you are going to be cast into the lake of fire. End of story, right? Even if it's forever and ever punishment, whatever. That, it, irrelevant. It's an end, okay? What we have is without an end in the sense that we are regenerated in Christ. We are going to live forever and we are going to live without the crummy deal of the lake of fire. We're going to be in a restored paradise and probably plus. I don't know what he has prepared for us. People love to write books on heaven and about what it's going to be like. We're going to float on clouds and stuff. We have no idea. The Bible talks very very little about what heaven is like. Very little. And yet people write books. If somebody writes a book on a subject that has about six sentences in the Bible on it, don't buy the book. Okay? There, there's very little about heaven in the Bible. Well, seeing that God created us, and we are what we are, and we right. do tend to complain a lot. If he did say a lot in the Bible about heaven, there'd be people complaining. There'd be com- like, people complaining about that. That is absolutely right. Oh, that's, yeah, you're absolutely right. He, he's given us enough information to let us know that it will be marvelous that it will be something so, so much better than what we have right now that we will not be able to believe it. And, you know, when you, uh, when you I don't know, think of something that is really great when you first get it, and after about two weeks you're, you're tired of it. Better one, going to Disney. Disney. Oh, yeah, going to Disney and how great it is. And the next time you go, it's like, i got to get out of this place. Before right? you leave, you got to hear yeah, you know, yeah, heaven will never be like that. Whatever it is like, it will never, we will never tire of it because we will always have the source of God's goodness flowing to us. He is infinite, he is infinitely good, and therefore we will infinitely receive his goodness. We will be surprised from moment to moment for eternity. We will never get over it. So just, just whatever it is, don't worry about it. It'll be pretty marvelous. A3, go ahead. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in a sin, in, in sinful man. In sinful Sorry. man. Yep. This one says in flesh. But anyway, uh, uh, now you think about that verse there. What a marvelous thing God did. I'm going to read it. It's a little different, not much. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh... God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Just those words right there. Christ came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He wasn't in sinful flesh, but he was in the likeness of sinful flesh. That takes you all the way back to the symbolism of Jacob and Esau, right? You had Esau was the first man. I'm sorry, he was a picture of the first man, Adam. He was hairy. Hair in the Bible is pictures and awareness of sin. His name Esau is based on the word Esau, meaning made. Adam was the made man, right? And then you have um, uh, his name was later changed to something. What did they change? Uh, Edom, which means red. That's right. And it's based on the word Adam. So everything about Esau was a picture of Adam. And then you have Jacob, which came out. He's he who follows after, right? 
He's the one grabbing his heel. He's following after his brother. Christ is following after Adam. He's coming in the likeness of his brother. All right? He's smooth-skinned. He doesn't have any sin. All of these things are being pictured in the Old Testament, and we'll see them happening again and again and again. All this beautiful symbolism pointing to Christ who would come in the likeness of sinful flesh so that he could redeem us from our sinful flesh. Just think about it. Think about the marvel of what the... We could probably just stop right now, and if you thought about it all week, it would just... It would be enough to fill your whole week, but let's analyze it. Um, 8.3, Romans 8.3 is one of those verses worth putting to memory. It succinctly states a fact which is otherwise unimaginable. God gave the law to the people of Israel. Within that law is a statement which seemingly is one granting life. Anybody remember which one it is? I've said it in at least 25 different sermons in the past two months. It's verse 18.5. It says, the nakedness of your... Oh, I'm sorry, 18... What did I write? Yeah, 18.5. Oh, I'm in... Wrong book. I'm in the wrong book. No, I'm not. Um, hang on a minute. 18, verse 5. Therefore, I was reading 15. I'm sorry, my... Um, okay. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does... There you go. That's right. He shall live by them. Okay, so it seems like if you observe the law of Moses that you're going to live forever. If you do these things, you will live by them. The implication is that if you don't do them, you will die by them. But if you don't die, then you live. live. Right. right. So the man who does these things will live by them. The implication is that if you do the things of the law, you will live and you will not die. Just as Adam would have lived and he would not have died if he didn't do the thing and break the law. He would have lived forever. Adam was designed to live forever. He didn't live forever. They are now given a promise. If you do the things of the law, you will live by them. Is anybody that lived under the law of Moses alive today? No. Nobody. No person ever met the law of Moses. However, let's think it through before I go on with my comments. Did Christ Jesus fulfill the law? Yes. Yes. Did he come out of the grave? Yes. Okay. If we enter into Christ Jesus, then what happens to us? We are raised with him. We are going to rise with Christ, and we will live forever. Therefore, we have fulfilled the law in Christ. Everybody got that? Mm-hmm. That's why the law is an old. If people can't see the, the, the basic symbolism of that, and they start going back into the law and trying to observe the law in one form or another, they have completely missed what is going on. The man who does these things will live by them. No person ever under the law, even from the very lawgiver himself and the very first high priest, died. Okay, no person did it. David died. Every person under the law died. Okay, the man who does these things will live by them. And yet we will live forever. That means that we must have fulfilled the law. But we didn't do it on our own. We did it because of Jesus. Everybody got that? That is so important to understand because if not, you're going to say someday when somebody tells you, well, it says in the book of Matthew that you need to blah, blah, blah. Oh my gosh, I've got to go out and start observing the Sabbath. Right? It's crazy. The man who does these things will live by them. I'm going to live forever because Christ lives forever and I am in Christ. I don't need to go back and do those things. Okay? So, we'll go on. However, the reality is that the law actually brought about death. It couldn't grant life because it was weak through the flesh. Man, because of his inherited corruption, is incapable of meeting the demands of the law. What was to bring life actually brought death. That's Romans 7, verse 10. Okay? And so the law seemed to merely add heavy baggage on the highway to destruction. But then the news of eternal wonder was introduced (coughs) into the stream of humanity. What the law could not do, God did for us. 
Such is the nature of the work of God. It is a gift, and it is solely of his doing. Where the law further condemned us, we found a new avenue of release when God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. This is the incarnation. God united with humanity, and he dwelled among us. Okay, where is that? Where is the incarnation actually recorded in the Bible? It's in two of the uh, Gospels, right? It's in the Gospels, Matthew, John. Matthew. Well, specifically the one that I'm thinking of is John one fourteen. This is what I used mm-hmm. to have on the back of my truck. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word of God. Okay, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay. That is the incarnation. God said, I am going to take care of this problem. I'm going to redeem man and I think on my what, own. What's, what's, missed, what's lost on that, that particular verse in our society today is that, okay, this is the word of God. However, when he came, there was no published Bible. That's right. It was the written law of Moses that right. he's talking about, right? Well, no, it's the word of God. God spoke right, the right. universe into existence. He is the logos, mm-hmm. the eternal word of God. But he fulfilled that word, yes. Mm-hmm. But it's what it's saying is that he is the word of God. The word here stems from him. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's what it's speaking of. It's okay. speaking that he is the word of God. He is what, how God reveals, and because God doesn't have a mouth. No. But the the issuing forth of the word is Christ. Mm-hmm. Okay, every single pronouncement in this word comes from Christ. Mm-hmm. But he manifested himself in human flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Okay, so he bore the garments of flesh that we bear. But unlike ours, which have the inherited baggage of Adam's fall, Jesus came through a woman, but not of a man. He was conceived without sin. He had the likeness of sinful flesh, but he was actually sinless. Okay, that's what Paul is telling us. He's giving us this information. God did this, sending his son on account of sin, as Paul says. Sin entered the world when the devil wrought his work of deception in the Garden of Eden. The devil seemed to have gained the victory, but John tells us in his first epistle that it was for this purpose that the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. As I said, all of the work of Christ, if you ask me what is the one thing that sums up the work of Christ, it is John 3.18, or I'm sorry, John 3.8, 1 John 3.8. need to make sure I get the right John in there. 1 John 3 verse 8. I'll read it to you again. For the, this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. If the devil never wrought any work against man, Adam would still be in the Garden of Eden, wouldn't he? Sure. And there would be no need for the Son of Man to come. The entire purpose of him coming is summed up in that. Now, there's a million other reasons why he came. I have come to give you life and give it more abundantly. I've come to do this and I've come to do that. But everything is based on the fact that we're fallen. All of those others, I have comes, is summed up in this one right here. He came to destroy the works of the devil. Okay? So this is what it means when Paul says, on account of sin. The devil is the master of this world of sin. But Jesus came to undo his work. And he did it. He condemned sin in the flesh. By coming as, as Adam was, Jesus was fully qualified to replace the error that Adam committed. Born sinless, Jesus was capable of prevailing over the law which was given. As it says in Leviticus, if a man does these things, he shall live by them. That's right. The marvel of the incarnation is that by coming in the likeness of sinful flesh, but bearing no sin, Jesus could do what no other person could even come close to doing. Through his work, we are now granted an offer. 
We can accept the work of Jesus on our behalf and be reconciled to God through him, or we can choose to stay in Adam and attempt to be reconciled in our own merits. You know, there are people there doing this all over the world. I'm going to please God and I'm going to work my way to heaven. It's one or the other, okay? This verse then is an explanation of the first two verses in Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. And then verse 3, for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Okay? Wonderful stuff. It is absolutely marvelous what Christ did for us. Life application, and we are done for the day. We are weakened by the sinful flesh we inherited, but Christ had no such limitation. He prevailed over the law, thus condemning sin in the flesh. As great as that sounds, we need to remember that in order for this to happen, Christ had to go to the cross. When you rejoice in his work, never forget the high cost which was paid in the process, right? Everything everything costs something. Nothing is free. Okay, there is no such thing as a free dinner, they say. Well, I can tell you, there is no such thing as free redemption or free salvation. Somebody had to do it, okay? And as I explain from time to time while I'm getting a pen and marking where we stop for the day, God cannot violate one of his own attributes, okay? He is loving, he's gracious, he's merciful, but if he was to say, I'm going to forgive you, without there being a punishment for that offense, okay, then he's not righteous. And here's the perfect example I tell it to everybody. If somebody kills somebody else's mother, right, and that person is taken to court and the judge says, you're off, I don't care. Is he a righteous judge? No. No, somebody lost their mother. The mother lost her life, the person lost their mother. It was an unjust decision. God cannot be unjust at all. A punishment must be rendered for every sin committed. Every person is born into sin. That's uh, Romans chapter 5. All right. David went so far as to say he was sinful from his mother's womb. Right? That's uh, Psalm 51. And so because there is an offense against God, there must be a punishment or God is not just. He cannot just arbitrarily forgive. He's not the God of the Koran who is vindictive, who is merciful, who is all of these things without any of them, co- uh, you know, there's no cohesion between his attributes in the Bible. That is not a God at all. That's a false God, okay? There's no change in God. And now what we need to do is we need to find a source, if there is one in the world, which explains that there is a God that has no change in him. Here it is. Now we can say, well, God forgave me. So he's forgiving and he changed. No, we changed. we changed in relation to him. And he also took a punishment out that we deserved on another. So there was no change in any of his attributes. They were fully and completely upheld. Okay, so you need to remember that. that the nature of God cannot be violated and you be studying the right book. Okay. Malachi 3.6. Yeah, I, the Lord your God, do not change. And then, uh, what is it, uh, Hebrews 13.8? Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. No change. We're talking about Christ, Jesus Christ. He does not change in any way, shape, or form. Whereas Jesus, the man, could change. He grew in uh, uh, statue and favor with God and men, right? In wisdom and favor and 
with yeah anyway um he, there were things he didn't know and then there were things he didn't know he went from a small boy to being a tall man there was change in the human jesus there was no change in christ jesus who is god okay he is the one that goes between the unseen god and fallen us okay he's man and he's god anyway yes um, what was i going to say i was oh you have to do that, that oh yeah 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 we'll do that we'll do that all right that would be a good time to probably in yeah romans 8 that'll be a good time we're going to get into election in romans 8 and we'll talk about that from uh uh the proper uh, context instead of the way the calvinists do and then they'll be in their church and they'll say well we're going to talk about election in the way that uh, uh in the correct way and so we have this disagreement between us but i i will never believe that we are regenerated in order to believe I will never believe that. I believe that we see the good in God and we receive the good and that Romans 3.17 excludes any work being assigned to us exercising faith. Okay? It does. All right. We'll go, go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, <clears throat> we thank you so very much for the chance to come into your presence and to share in your word. And, uh, and what a wonderful word it is that would tell us that you would send your son to come into this world in the likeness of sinful flesh to condemn sin in the flesh. And you did that for us. And we still struggle with it. We still carry around the burden of it in our life. It is something that we can't get over on our own, but we can prevail because of what Christ did. And so give us that strength. Give us the wisdom to pursue you and to follow after you all our days and help us never to... uh, Uh, fall back into the old man but to stay renewed and to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and Lord we certainly pray for Paul who is in the hospital and who's just he's just having such a tough time and we pray that you would just strengthen him and get him uh, back up on his feet and we pray for strength for Elaine who is there with him every time I've been there she's been there with him and we thank you that she's so faithful to be there and to to spend her time in the hospital and uh, Lord, we pray for Don, who's still struggling now with stage four cancer, and we would pray that you would be with him and help him to get through this and uh, bring him out to a happy resolution in that. And Lord, anybody else with pains or troubles or trials in their life, we would ask that you would look into them to search them out and to hear their pleas and their prayers for you. We certainly have Tom, our brother here, who is so quiet about these things that we often forget to think of him, but we pray for him as well and that He's uh, would be strengthened and up, upheld by you and uh, just brought back to 100%. Lord, we thank you for these things. We ask that you just uh, lead us in the week ahead and bring us to our respective places of worship on Sunday where we can hear a good word about you and to be edified in that as well. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Speaking of Paul, I told him that there was a lot of people online that were asking about him. And oh, yes. Lit up. Wow. He said that he has gotten cards signed by dozens of people who must get together. And Isn't that? That's, Nancy probably is a lot behind that because Nancy sends cards to everybody. Somebody here is getting one. That's not for me. That's for somebody who will be here on Sunday. But let me back this thing up here. We're going to go to a break. And then we're going to back up here and we'll say goodnight to everybody online. Oh, I can hardly stand up. All right, everybody, we love you. We want you to have a wonderful week, okay? See you later. Um, did you uh, physically survive your, your cleanup? Oh, yeah. It's, I, 